Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, it's Mr. P here. I'm the other Mr. P. And we are the hosts of two Mr. P's in a podcast. The educational podcast where you don't actually learn a thing. No, instead we explore the weird, wonderful and downright hilarious things that happen in school from people actually doing the job. We reminisce on our own time at school, funny things we experience each day. And of course, we share your hilarious stories from the chalk face. So if you work in a school or just want a nostalgic trip down memory lane, sit up straight, fingers on lips and get ready for the lesson. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listen to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Pop Craze Youngsters, and welcome to part two of episode 59 of Chart Music. I'm Al Needham, they're Taylor Parks and Neil Kulkarnet, and the three of us are absolutely champing at the bit to kick on, so I'll just say, all right then, Pop Craze Youngsters, it's time to get stuck into this episode of Top of the Pops. Always remember, we may code down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget... They've been on top of the pops more than we have. It's 7pm on Thursday, July the 3rd, 1986, and Top of the Pops is now firmly bedded in at the old Tomorrow's World slot, where it's been since September of 1985 and would stay until June of 1996, although last month's World Cup meant that the episode three weeks ago was brought forward to Wednesday so BBC One could screen the second stage game between Northern Ireland and Brazil. Oh, that would have been weird, wouldn't it? Wednesday. Top of the pops on a Wednesday. That just ain't right. As we've already pointed out, Michael Grade is all to blame for this. He forced TV programmes to be constricted to half-hour slots because that's how the Americans did it. And uh, you could say that was the first nail in the coffin of Top of the Pops. We've lost 10 minutes of beautiful pop. Yeah, I mean, those... Every week. Those 45 minutes episode are just glorious. I mean, it's scarcely believable that they let Top of the Pops last for that long. Yeah. And let the pop craze youngsters have 45 minutes of pop. It's amazing. Not right restricting it to half an hour because you can see that it really affects Top of the Pops. I mean, we've only got eight songs to discuss in this episode. Yeah, but I mean, you know, we could talk for five hours about those eight tracks. (laughs) Your host this evening is Janice 
all night long, <laughs> who is still holding down the evening slot on weekday Radio 1, taking over from Bruno Brooks at half seven, being interrupted by working for yourself, the young entrepreneur show at nine, <sighs> and then handing off to Andy Kershaw at ten because John Peel's off cycling about the country or whatever he gets up to on his days off. This is her second solo presenting gig on Top of the Pops. She became the first woman to present Top of the Pops on her own in May of 1985. Because Top of the Pops, you know, they've started to relax the two-presenter rule that they put in in the early 80s. But Janice is firmly established in the front rank of regular Top of the Pops presenters in 1986. A pool which includes Mike Smith, John Peel, Steve Wright, Gary Davis, Peter Powell, Simon Mayo, and still Simon Bates. <laughs> it's not a pool I'd want my children to um, paddle in. Thanks to a material broadcasting style, that's the uh, opposite of avuncular, mm. chaps, mm. don't you know? Man. And Radio 1 wanting to get in on today's issues. Janice is currently being roped in to educate the youth on all manner of causes. At the start of the year, she linked up with Eve Ferret, Andrew Cruikshank, Dr. Cameron in Dr. Finley's casebook, and Jimmy Young for a series of special announcements about the dangers of alcohol on London weekend television. And at the end of the year, she'll be teaming up with Brian Redhead, Nick Ross, and Jimmy Young again for a week-long campaign on BBC Radio about the dangers of the AIDS. I can't imagine Jimmy Young talking (laughs) about rimming to a load of housewives. Can't you? (laughs) She's also been in the papers recently having a massive hug with her childhood hero, Mick Jagger, after interviewing him for her show. But she's just undergone a less friendly interview with another 60s artist. According to the gossip section of this week's NME, quote... During the recording of a Janice Long show last week, on which the artist in question was airing his top seven discs, the plump, bubbling one, their words, not mine, asked why he'd chosen a particular record. Why did I fucking choose it, came succinct reply. I didn't fucking choose it. Some two-bit punk from the record company fucking chose it. As the same thing of the next record, he reiterated, I didn't fucking choose it. The fucking record company chose it. Needless to say, these carefully chosen words were edited out of the broadcast, as was the bit where he punched his manager on the nose and promptly sacked him. (laughs) And that already middle-aged man grew up to be... Oh man, who is that? Van Morrison. Uh... Of course it was Van Morrison. (laughs) Good to see he's calmed down and become a bit more reasonable these days, eh? (laughs) Play the game. He's an old pro, he should know better. (laughs) Anyway, forget about him. Janice Long. She's essentially taken over from Kid Jensen by 1986. And you could say Mm -hmm. there are a lot of similarities between the two. They've occupied the same slot on Radio 1. They both love their music. They both get on with John Peel. And they both leave their imprint on top of the pops while realising it's not about them. I think we've already established now that we kind of like Janice, don't we? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, she's actually I've, I've actually started liking her more through doing chart music mm. and being able, you know, obviously being confronted with so many awful presenters. Um, people like Janice, people like Kid Jensen, people like Peely. 
Um, you know, it's like there's two types of TOTP presenters. Janice, I would put with Peely and, and Kid Jensen. They are, to all intents and purposes, not um, slick. They're naturally good presenters. You never get the feel with her that she's putting yeah. anything on or that she has that oleaginous thing that's so unsettling in the likes of, you know, Steve Wright and, and, and Bruno Brooks and people like that. The thing about the supposed mm. slickness of that whole, well, I mean, going way back, that whole Travis Blackburn... Bates generation is that it's a really thickly painted on veneer and a really blatant one that's clearly masking so much internal Mm. arrogance and bitterness and fundamental inability to genuinely connect with other human beings um that generation of djs and their kind of their ancestors if you like which i'd say bruno brooks and gary davis and and steve wright are definitely inheritors of that kind of thing they all have that faint solipsism whereby it seems the interaction with others is kind of you know waiting for others to shut up so you could speak their conversations with with people mm. are just interrupted monologues in a sense they can't cope with other humans um or other human yeah, beings that aren't serviceable to their ambitions um and you know this extends all the way through to today with that disgraceful bag of shit liz kershaw whereas with mm. with janice she always seemed honoured to do Top of the Pops and kind of as surprised by her success as she was delighted by it. You get, you don't get this sense of horrible wheels turning inside her thinking of ambition. She's not doing this so she can open some supermarkets. <laughs> no, no. I mean, that ambition is all you get from her contemporaries. That The slickness wasn't just what the 70s Top of the Pops presenters had perfected to mask their horror, but, but something that also the relatively anodyne innocent likes of Goodyear and Brooks and Davis had as well. That aspect of kind of self-deprecation. Mm that never really successfully masked their own ambitions. I really like Janice. And to be honest, doing chart music has made me like her even more. For a show like Top of the Pop, she manages to communicate excitement and discernment and humour, all the good things that a good TOTP host should be able to conjure. Crucially, she's a relaxing presence. She seems comfortable in her own Mm. skin. She seems like a music fan. She seems like a music fan as well who, like us in this period, was kind of staying loyal to Top of the Pop's. Um, through an era mm. of music shows, which is not what Top of the Pops is. It's not a music show, it's a pop show. Um, through an era of music shows which are threatening Top of the Pops, Janice stays loyal. And this is the thing with her. I think she likes music. I'm not saying it's easy to be a Top of the Pops presenter, but when you think about Savile, DLT, Bates, etc., you know, you ma- imagine having the arrogance and the gall to feel you can present a TV pop show, let alone substantial chunks of the airways on the UK's only pop station, when you actually don't like pop mm. and you consider it beneath yeah. you. Then, of course, presentation just becomes part of a kind of portfolio career. But Janice is born in... 1955 and by the time top of the pops has started she's a little kid by the time bowie's singing starman you know she's 17 i think she remembers how important the show is and you always got from janice not a sense of confrontation or sliminess but a sense of comradeship and to me she's equal to kid jensen in in that that ease of style mm. really so yeah i put her up a, among the very last tot presenters certainly of this era yeah. yeah i mean i wouldn't say that i particularly liked her broadcasting style but it doesn't really matter because she doesn't come over as a psychopath mm. um and you know the enthusiasm is genuine and really that's all you need to do this fucking job you know mm. what I mean? It's amazing yeah. how difficult that seems. Mm. She's just like someone that you could imagine if you were stuck on a cable car for six hours with Janice, <laughs> you'd just chat about what she did at college and, you know, which was the best Julian Cope solo album. And yeah. then <laughs> what's Ted Rogers really like? <laughs> and then the men would arrive to get you down and you'd say, well, 
Anyway, nice to meet you. Yeah, what, 7.30 to 10, you say? All right, I'll... I'll be sure to give it a listen. And that would be that, right? As opposed to almost any other Top of the Pops presenter where the men would arrive to get you down and they'd say, oh, they told us there were two people stuck up. <laughs> you go, uh, no. Uh, but, I mean, that's that's not to damn with faint praise because she has spent her life genuinely enjoying and actively promoting music without mm. becoming a monster mm-hmm. or a smug prick, which is a, a rare achievement. So fair play. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Top of the Pops. And here in the studio at number three with Happy Hour, it is the House Martins. The show begins with the wizard and uh, the usual kind of like 1986 graphic mess. It's horrible. I hate these titles. I hate, I always hate those sort of 80s vector graphics or whatever they are, where it's like, you know, cerise lines. Yeah, on a black background. It's all blocks zooming around in formation meaninglessly. And uh, Mm. you've got a cassette spinning in the void killing music <laughs> and it's illegal um which is an interesting choice for a program based on record sales um yes unless they now imagine that most of the audience were buying cast singles which they most <laughs> assuredly were not but for once a top of the pops title sequence isn't five years behind the times mm. unfortunately the time that it's not behind is 1986 <laughs> Um, But the point is, this is the first sign that we see tonight that the late 80s is a coming in, um, which there's a lot of it in this program. I mean, this is a ghastly mess in precisely the style that we would come to associate with the next few years. I think we've retched over this Top of the Pops logo before, but (laughs) it's horrific design. It's like they laid out all of the typefaces and asked a six-year-old child to choose one and, mm. and they mm. just kept saying all of them all yeah. of them yeah exactly you know, and, and <laughs> yeah. some wiggly lines and in the end the designer just went well okay but as long as it's not symmetrical um and, this is, <laughs> that's what, oh, and you can see it in the studio as well it's full of clutter yeah and everything's on different levels and mm. there's yeah neon squiggles in clashing colors flashing mm. everywhere you know it's like the objective was to stuff all the available space with crap, which was a a popular late 80s uh, delusion that a a good idea is worth 10 points and a bad idea is worth one point. So 10 Hmm. bad ideas equals one good idea. You know what I mean? What sums it up is in the studio, they've got these uh, spinning Christmas tree lamp towers. They don't do anything. They're just like twirling cylinders studded with uh, different coloured lights, which don't illuminate anything mm-hmm. or create any sort of lighting effect. Um, and anyway, if you stick that many different colours that close to each other and then spin them round, they just cancel each other out anyway. Um, <laughs> mm. So it's just like this pointless clown-coloured distraction, just doing nothing but taking up visual space and making it hard to establish any actual mood, which is really what 80s design was all about yeah yeah it's fucking yeah. horrendous 
The simple failure to, to settle on a unified typeface for the logo is, you know, in, in terms of brand and marketing strategies, it's disastrous. You can't picture this logo. I mean, you can picture the faint nausea you feel from the colours because it feels like your telly's on the blink. But, you know, mm. whereas if I asked you to picture the 70s TOTP logo, it'd be instantaneously in your head. This yes. one is just a bit all yeah. over the place. You just remember it looking kind of nauseating and revolting. So, yeah. 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 Not a good look. If you watch Top of the Pops every week at this point, and someone just gave you a biro and a bit of paper and said, draw <laughs> the Top of the Pops logo, <laughs> you wouldn't even know where to start. No, 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 no. Yeah. We crash straight into the opening act with the disembodied voice of Janice introducing Happy Hour by the House Martins. Formed in Hull in 1983 by P.D. Heaton and Stan Cullimore, the House Martins originally began as a busking duo whose demo tape was picked up by Go Discs, the independent label formed by the former press officer at Stiff Records that was beginning to have success with Billy Bragg. Once signed, they expanded into a four-piece lineup, which also included Hugh Whittaker, the former drummer of local band The Gargoyles, and a former bandmate of Heaton's when he lived in Surrey, Norman Cook, on bass. Their debut single, Flag Day, failed to chart when it came out in November of 1985, but their second, Sheep, scrabbled up to number 56 in March of this year. This is the follow-up, which was originally called French England and had been sitting in Heaton's notebook for years when he was an office worker in Surrey and was exhumed when the band were invited to do a Peel session. It's the third cut from their debut LP, London Nil Hall 4, which came out the other week. It entered the top 40 at number 30 three weeks ago, then soared 18 places to number 12. After a screening of the video on top of the pops, which juxtaposed live footage of the band in a pub in St John's Wood with a dollop of claymation tomfoolery, which was put together by a team of student animators, it soared another nine places to number three. This week, it stayed at number three, but no matter. Here's the fourth best band in Hull, but this time in the studio. And it might be a mistake for them not to run the video again, but who can blame them for wanting to have their moment on top of the pops? Yeah, I think I think by the time of this appearance, most of us had seen the video. So it was yeah. actually kind of refreshing actually seeing them in the flash, as I recall. Yeah, here they are actually playing yeah. instruments. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's odd because I'm very ambiguous about the house minds. At the time, I think I really loved them. And I flipping loved this song. And I loved mm. the funny video. I'm a sucker for anything mm. claymation. And, you know, they were lefties that weren't from London. Very catchy songs, etc. Yeah. As time's gone on, and I've sort of seen their influence, um, and I think about scouting for fucking girls and the like, mm. I've grown less fond of them. But, you know, probably in this episode, they would have been one of the things that I would have, been, have most enjoyed. Yeah. They're kind of like, what they remind me of, they're, they're kind of like those that whole socialists brigade, if you like, but without any soul music yes. in their sound. Or, or any kind of sloganeering, or any of the kind of rabble-rousing. This is definitely post-Red Wedge kind of pop in response to Thatcherism. But it's, it, it's uh, consequently, it's got a quite a defeated perspective in a way. There are still bands trying to keep a bit of leftism alive in pop at this period, you know, you and Cry and people like that, still trying to keep that kind of great mm. resistance to Thatcherism alive in pop. So this song, it finds the singer out in the town feeling alienated on this works night out from the kind of aspirant macho yuppies he has to work with 
to survive. And mm. although I love the video, in a strange way, on Top of the Pops, where the House Martins can't control the messaging so much, they're actually thrown into an even more kind of stark and vivid reflection of the line that they're treading. Because the song seems to express yeah. this faint contempt for a lot of the people in the audience, to be fair. It's this, it's mm. this kind of gust of humbicide drizzle in the middle of people dancing <laughs> around their filofaxes, including, I'm sure, I see a couple of zoo guys. I don't know whether the zoo is still going in 86, but there's a yeah. couple right in the middle dancing in, an, in a very, very zoo way. And, and exactly the kind of people, in a sense, that the song is, is taking the piss out of. Yes. What I don't like now, although I loved it then, is that jokiness, that kind of love of pop that comes off as kind of parody you know, that we're ugly, gormless blokes, so let's accentuate that. In a period coming after, really, the demise of Wham and Duran and that, that's a less bold move than it might have been a few years previously. But like everyone else, mm. you know, I love the video and I really yucked at the kind of small scaleness of it, the familiarity and the lack of things like yeah. big air and makeup. It was like, the video was like, it was like a Play for Today or Victoria Wood documentary or something, you know, it's like this real shot of that. Or a comic strip in this. Yeah. Which I just got into that year and fucking loved. And I think the first time I saw the House Martins would have been in Viz's top 10 bribery page. Yeah, and it'll go discs. They sponsored Fulchester Rovers, didn't they, briefly? As I yeah, exactly. I mean, I should have felt a lot of kinship with this kind of music as a despairing young lefty. I was, you know, I was, you know, drawing CCCP on my, on my, on my pencil cases at this point. But yes. I found far more excitement in the games with identity politics that someone like, I don't know, Prince was making, or the far more explicitly agit-pop manoeuvres that the likes of, of Public Enemy would soon be making. I think as a team, what you're really mm. after in terms of politics in pop is not necessarily what's right, but what is righteous. And, and it, 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 you mm. know, when you're a teenager, you're not really into mournfulness in this regard anyway. And I think what they were providing the House Martins was kind of sad and a little bit sardonic and essentially a plea in really tough times but of course i was you know 13 i didn't want equality or yeah. an evening up of the scores i wanted a kind of revolution and although in 86 mm. this almost sounds like an alternative by 87 what the house martins are doing here really it sounds dated i mean i love the undertones who i think are a big influence here and although i'm yeah. not sure i noticed at the time actually the precise feel this this uh, happy hour reintroduces to the charts is actually that of karma chameleon in a weird way but hmm. but like the smiths the house martin suggested really that the only way forward for white pop that wasn't directly trying to wait black pop anyway was was backwards so we, we get here not so much a new yeah. beatles but a new tremolos i guess or a new swing in blue jeans as time's gone on i've liked it less and less in a way uh, i'm sure paul heaton is a hoot on twitter and a massively lovely guy oh you get on with him neil he's got a massive collection of crisp <laughs> i probably would yeah but i'm also kind of sick of nice guys on twitter it counts my unfathomably deep loathing of um everything but the girl i'm innately distrustful of that whole radio six cool. set of people who are all mates on twitter fuck those people um <laughs> but um i mean one thing that has cemented my dislike is that my biggest tv crush Dr. Alice Roberts tweeted something funny about dumping a guy just because she was a goth at the time and found that he owned a House Martins record. So that's cemented my Ooh. ongoing aversion to a certain extent because I'm still holding a torch for her. But in 86, I really flipping loved this song. And, and, and um, yeah. I'm glad to see him on top of the pops having fun playing it as well. In the latest Melody Maker in the uh, interview they did in it, they were talking about whether they were going to get involved in mm -hmm. Red Wedge, but they said, oh, I don't know. It, it, depends what they have to say about things. So that's still going. Right. And from that interview and this performance, 
they can't believe that they are where they are today. I mean, Paul Heaton was convinced that they were only going to be one-hit wonders. And his main memory of this performance is getting Bill Oddie's autograph in the BBC <laughs> bar afterwards. So, yeah, their sights are set really yeah. low and they're not sure what they're doing here. As soon as I saw this was a 1986 episode, I thought to myself, fucking House Martins are going to be on this. <laughs> the under undertones. And here we are. There's not even time for your soup to cool down. And there they are. <laughs> it's a bit weird that they were the indie breakthrough act of 1986. Yes. But yeah, they, they were our band, weren't they? Yeah, but I think it's because they could be sold as a novelty and their their quirks and their passion was ignorable. And compared to most indie bands, they were fairly pleasingly musical mm-hmm. in as much as they mm. could play and he could sing. Mm. And there was no particular element of like artiness or, or rawness, which meant that they just came over as these little dancing men singing jolly songs yeah. about nothing, which of course were mm. actually all fire-breathing left-wing agitprop, but no one <laughs> noticed or cared apart from the people... Yeah who had nothing to learn from that anyway and mm. were just chuffed to have their own views sung back at them, you know, while mm. while fondly imagining that the masses might be converted in a, a flash of enlightenment by inaudible lyrics that they weren't listening to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nah. And that was a lot of people's idea of uh, subversive at the time, and it sort of still is. And I've never really believed in it. It's like that tedious thing of, hey, this song was really about drugs, but nobody <laughs> knew. Yeah, nobody knew or cared. And it's the same. This song sounds like a, a field full of bouncing bunnies, yeah. but it's actually an anti-yuppie and anti-boss class diatribe. And, you know, fine, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to write a song about. But let's not forget that the only reason these lads are in the chart is that they found a way to mix uh, unthreatening northern self-deprecation with pure student appeal, Mm. with, like, the shaved necks and the shapeless Billy Bragg T-shirts and, you know, Mm. comical specs and and exaggerated sexlessness and pretending that your name's Stan when it's really Ian or pretending (laughs) that your name's Norman when it's really Quentin. Uh, and you know with this cheerful and deliberately thin sounding record as though taking up any more sonic space would be obnoxious and Mm. macho you know Mm. it's like that that would be like oral man spreading um (laughs) and that was it they they didn't turn out to be some kind of entryist trojan horse they turned out to be the house martins you know (laughs) so what and uh, what i I did quite like them at the time, but what I didn't like at the time and what I really don't like now was their gimmick, if you remember, of saying that they were Christians. And I don't take Jesus, take Marx, take hope, which is what they had on the uh, inner sleeve of their album. Yeah. All right. Now, I don't know if they really were Christians or if it was just the last pose left after Morrissey had pretended to be celibate. Um, mm. I don't know. Maybe it was just the desperation of worn out rock and roll, you know. Mm. But maybe they were. But it seems a bit unpleasant to me 
not just because they set themselves up as Christian pop musicians, which, you know, nobody likes, let's face it, <laughs> but because they set themselves up as Christian political pop musicians. And for me, personally, that always sets, the, sets off the alarm, that mixture of uh, politics and religion, even when it seems quite benign. Right, because I hate it when that stuff comes around. Like the, like the Christian lefty thing always gives me the creeps. Like, you know, in this country, when people do like, oh, Jesus was the original communist and all that stuff, you know. And- <laughs> I don't think he was an astronaut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I must insist he was a socialist. Uh, you know, talk about liberation theology and, uh, you know, the role of Methodism in the early Labour Party and all that. It just, it makes me uncomfortable because what you find in real life is that that credulity and woolly thinking which brought these people to their church makes them prone to blind faith and or messianic delusions. And you end up with like a weird ideologue i've never trusted politicians of any stripe who come across like vicars do you know what i mean mm. didn't like it in tony blair didn't like it in tony ben because there's always some level at which they're living in a fantasy world and distanced from other human beings and they trust themselves too much like they're blinded by a, a light in the heavens and it never ends well and I, also i hate the way that the House Martins aesthetically mix Christianity and socialism to accentuate the worst aspects of, of both. You know, it's not like it doesn't mm. really seem joyful. It seems like they're almost fetishizing the sort of the small, rainy, black and white television versions of those things it's like a like a freezing cold church with uh two grannies in it you know and a, a chipped font and uh or like a clp meeting in a hut there's some old cunt pulling everyone up on points of order it's all it feels more like that stuff it's like this proud attachment to every form of austerity except one you know what i mean and if the battle is raging then, okay, yeah, better this lot than Mumford and that, you know, sure. But when you're not thinking in strict binary terms or when you're thinking in artistic terms, these people are the enemy, really, Mm. like all sort of pinched and frigid and disapproving. Do you know what I mean? Like they're doing their tiny dance in their (laughs) tiny space, you know, talking about how there's a world to win. And never going further than Bridlington. <laughs> I mean, we can say this from a distance, and you know, from this distance, they do look like another lab band. But and they have been forgotten about as well in the uh, annals of the late eighties. But yeah. at the time, they seemed massively important. They were one of our bands, showing that a band like that could still get into the top ten. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, to me, seeing people like Hugh Whitaker and Stan Cullimore on top of the pops in 1986, almost as much of a shock as seeing Boy George on top mm. of the pops in 1981, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, I remember watching this and thinking, fucking hell, that could be me and my mates doing that. And that hadn't happened in ages. Yeah. They're massively out of place, aren't they, in that studio with all the aforementioned yes. colour lights and stuff. This is a club that they wouldn't ordinarily go to, you know. I can't deny I loved them at the time. I mean, I bought this single and I got the album and they are one of the last British bands that I was properly invested in. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I'd, I'd really like to pick up on something Taylor said as well about this, this sort of stealing a socialist message through in what appears to be a pop song. I must admit... 
that you know as a what i was 13 14 the lyrics to this what sang out was that phrase happy hour over and over again you know i mean that that, that it, uh, it, yeah, it, it was the hook that mattered and kind of the subtleties of the lyrics did pass me by i think i got conditioned by hip-hop potentially to kind of expect my political music to not only lyrically be political but to sound political in some ways you know what i mean and this this doesn't really yeah, yeah, yeah. it is that thing of stealing that message through somehow which implies that really that message yeah it's amenable to the to the cognoscenti or at least people who, are, who can be who are still buying smash hits i guess to read the lyrics but i'm unconvinced by it uh, uh, you know if if i much preferred the house martins when i didn't know that they were lefties in a way when they were just yeah this kind of they were an odd proposition in 86 and seeing them on top mm. of the pops it wasn't even a blast from the past or anything it was like you know th- th- there was nobody else quite like that on top of the pops um and they didn't play the yeah. same games as, of kind of performance you know on top of the pops either that i mean look at the way mm. paul heaton's dancing on this this is like you know these are people who aren't commonly seen on top of the pops in the late 80s era at all so i appreciate yeah. their difference but yeah i think you're right out retrospect does them no favors yeah. i mean at the time i was 18 but i wasn't going into pubs mm. because Pubs to me meant, you know, sitting with my dad and his mates moaning on about shit I wasn't interested in or danger and violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the song's about going out to the pub and having to sit there with your cunt of a boss, Mm. wanging on about how easy it is to pick up women when you know all the tricks. And that song always reminds me of, you know, sitting in the pub when my cunty boss has invited everyone out for a drink in the pub for a bonding session and everyone's just sitting there going look can't you just go so we can start enjoy ourselves bitching about you (laughs) that is it that is what work drinks are like but i mean the thing the the thing is the the odd thing about team building (laughs) fuck that the odd thing about this song is though you know it's self-consciously small in a sense and the video you know like you say is made by sort of student animators and stuff like that but in a weird way as much as i don't know dead ringer for love this is a song that is so intimately associated with that video that when i was enjoying it on the Mm. radio it was reminding me of the video you know the song came across not as a unique statement in itself but as the soundtrack to that video that we had all enjoyed so yes And it did for them, didn't it? Because people thought, oh, look, it's a Northern Madness. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. what they wanted to be, and that's not what they turned out to be. The, the Christian thing, I'd completely forgotten about until Taylor mentioned it. I remember a lot of talk about that around about the time of Caravan of Love. Yeah. When they had crucifixes shaved into their mm. heads. <laughs> but in this performance, they've pushed the boat out. They've got in a load of House Martin scarves and lobbed them out to the audience who are waving them about Bay City Roller style. Yeah, yeah. And I always wonder what happens with that, because that, that's a very 70s conceit, isn't it? You know, it's like the, them big Kenny stickers we mentioned before. Do you need to get permission off Michael Hurl, <laughs> or do you just lob them out and hope people pick up on what they're supposed to do with them? Oh, I think Hurl would have been involved, absolutely. I think this would have been a consultative mm. process hours before the show taped. Because <laughs> otherwise, how are you going to get them out to the audience? You can't just sling them out. So, you yeah. know, yeah, it would, yeah. Have, it would have been, yeah, a consultative thing. But the audience, I find an awful lot of the audience really don't know how to dance to this. No. It's one of those weird songs. You either find the pulse, which is actually slower than you think, or you try and dance to it too fast and look like a fucking idiot. And, and most of them seem to be doing the latter. Or you dance to it like they do on their own video. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a, essentially a, a chicken dance. 
yeah, the video's funny as fuck. It probably still is funny as fuck. Yeah, it is. But I didn't buy this on single. I didn't sit around at home listening to it without the video. I just waited for the next showing of the video because it always used to make me chuckle. And because of the video and because of the title of the song, it's essentially um, Born Slippy by Underworld. Uh, almost a decade before the event. And it's another born in the USA, isn't it? Because in an interview with The Guardian in 2018, Paul Heaton said that he got loads of letters from landlords who were complaining that people would jump up and dance on the tables when Happy Hour came on the jukebox and cause all manner of damage. (laughs) I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it became the anthem of the end of lockdown and when the pubs were properly open again. Uh, yeah, yeah, because because it's happy hour again is the one bit of lyric you can make out. All of the rest of them are too yeah. fast for you to discern every single word, and that's yeah. where all the critique is. But yeah, happy hour, yeah, that that's going to be a pub anthem. It's going to be a chumba wumba style fucking pub anthem. Oh, um, God, yes, and so it remains probably. I'll tell you the other thing yeah. that's weird about them. They do this like down to earth, unpretentious bit, right? Which can be great, but you have to do it a certain way. Like, if you set that sort of bluff, grounded, like, anti-pretentiousness off against some twinkle of madness or darkness or humour or or fury or something, Mm. that it can work. Uh, But but otherwise, it doesn't doesn't come over like you're undermining idiots and posers, you know. It's just you undermining yourself because of what you're actually giving, you know. But it's sort of... (laughs) Quite often you find the people who are most keen to present themselves as normal and ordinary are uh, weirdos, right? Like, I was completely unsurprised, for instance, when uh, the House Martins drummer was sent to jail for an axe attack on a former business associate. Mm. I saw that coming a mile off, right? (laughs) Him and Bungle from Rainbow. Um, if, if you if you if you forget this, the Stanley what? Bates, the bloke who played Bungle in Rainbow, uh, bound over to keep the peace after a road rage assault on a forty-year-old mother of five in Bury. Oh Sutton. my god! Uh, but that seemed inevitable too. You know, oh. it's. Uh, <laughs> I read a, a local paper article about because I had to check that i hadn't misremembered that right so i looked it up on the internet no, and there's or dreamt it yeah <laughs> and there's a local paper article from the time and it describes the the case and it says bates who wore a gray suit rather than his usual fluffy outfit <laughs> <laughs> like he was going to be standing in the dark dressed as <laughs> like on the jury was uh george and zippy it's like Ronnie yes. LeDrew mm. crouched down, like underneath the <laughs> underneath the jury benches. It's like, oh, I know, Bungle Bunch, you're going down now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine there was much wiggling of George's fingers over his mouth. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, it, it's it, so like the House Martins are supposed to be these regular guys. They're fucking. I mean, what a weird rhythm section this band's got for a start. <laughs> like mm. Quentin and the Axe Man. It's just like, <laughs> uh, I hope things picked up later for him and the man he hit with an axe, but sadly <laughs> history records no more. I'd say you can tell that Quentin already in this, you can tell Quentin is from a slightly different bracket, right? Because mm. the band dress code is down and yes. the others yeah, yeah. follow that with 
you know, shitty T-shirts and like old... Mm-hmm. A Billy Bragg T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, and, that's what um, I mean. And like old jeans. Drummer's got a Frankie Say on the Unemployed T-shirt, which yeah. would have been enormously retro yeah. in 1986. Yeah. But Quentin's managed to sneak in these kind of understated Northern Soul togs, you know what I mean? Mm. And instead mm. of getting a two-pound haircut like the rest of them, he's got this sort of semi-suede head do that was obviously mm. what he actually asked for rather than mm, yes. just whatever was left when the barber got tired, you know. <laughs> you can tell he's already itching to get down to Brighton, you know what I mean? He's thinking, oh, I wonder if Johnny Ball's got a daughter. Yeah. <laughs> he's calling himself DJ Ox at the minute, isn't he? <laughs> Is he? All right. Is yeah, there's a clip of them on one of the BBC Two music shows, and he's already demonstrated that he, he knows his way around some decks. I remember that. Was that when he had the Clash and Run DMC? Yes. Uh, which now seems just like the most dully obvious mix you could ever do. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, at the time, it was pretty go-ahead. It was, and they seemed pretty go-ahead at the time. I mean, there's an age difference between me and you. So, you know, yeah. t- to my mind, this was a relief. Mm. It did seem like a can of top deck had been fizzed up and let off in the cocktail bar. Yeah. I'll always be fond of the House Martins. Well, to be honest, that's sort of what I thought at the time. I just, I just can't recapture that feeling. When I see and hear yeah, them now. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, though. I'll tell you a story about why I quite like Paul Heaton, right? I like the fact that he does seem to be this slightly distant and sort of doer bloke, you know, and you're never quite yeah. 100% sure what his game is, right? Um, but that's all right. I met him once, and he was he was okay. He said about six words in six hours, but he was all right. This was in Turku which is in Finland. Right. Uh, it's like a really ugly Soviet-looking town in really, really beautiful surroundings of lakes and greenery. Mm. And I was there to write about a pop festival that they were having there by the side of the lake. Um, but, of course, there aren't many hotels in Turku. No. So all the megastar acts, like headliners Bon Jovi, were sort of, I guess, flown in and out. Mm. Um, and all the local acts would have made their own way. But all the sort of middle groups, like the British sort of mid-range acts and me were all staying in the same hotel in the middle of Turku. So I found myself in the bar drinking with uh, the Boo Radleys and Paul Heaton and someone else whose name and entire existence now escapes me. And he didn't say a lot. He just basically only seemed interested in his pint and and the next one Mm. and the one after that. Um, Happy hour again. (laughs) <laughs> well, no such thing as happy hour in Scandinavia, though. That, that means the pints are only £30. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I understood the sort of militant anti-star thing a bit better after this night, because what yeah. happened was we sat around drinking, and, of course, it's Finland in August, so it gets dark about 1am, mm. uh, and then it gets light again at 2am. <laughs> so we're still sat there like English idiots, you know, when the sun's back up. And we notice there's still people milling around outside in the street because it's still night time, yeah. and the night is still underway. So we decided to go out and go down to a drinking club down in the main street in Turku. So... We go outside and we go past this young bloke of about 21 sat in the curb Mm. uh, with his feet in the road eating chips out of a styrofoam tray. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And we go past and he stands up 
and he starts walking with us. And it's like, okay. Mm. And he says, uh, where are you going? Oh, down, just down to a drinking club. Oh, yeah. Can I come? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this lad's got like a red neckerchief with white polka dots and like <laughs> ankle-length corduroys. And he comes over to me and he wipes the chip grease off his mouth. And he says, hey, are you Taylor Parks? No. I'm like, yeah, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I'm in fucking Finland. I've just been recognised mm. in the street at 2.30 a.m. <laughs> in this blazing hell. post-apocalyptic sunshine by a bloke in the gutter. And like, I mean, I used to walk around London every day and every night, and no fucking knew or cared who I was, you know. Nobody ever said who's that cool cat dressed like a 70s photographer. Is that Taylor <laughs> Park? So, so I said to him, yeah, yeah. You didn't have a leather jacket with your face on it and Taylor Parks written on the back, did you? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I, I didn't didn't dare take that one out of my wardrobe in case it got creased. Um <laughs> But no, but I, so I said to him, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that bloke over there is the singer from the beautiful South. And this is the Boo Radleys, you know, thinking that might be a bit of a bigger deal if he was a sort of starstruck type. Mm. And he sort of vaguely looks over and then he looks back and then he sort of shrugs, goes, yes, I know. Now tell me about your Supergrass article. <laughs> Whoa. It really wasn't comfortable. And literally like 30 seconds in, this, this guy says to me, so look, tell me, I need to know this. Is Paul Lester a twat? <laughs> <laughs> I said to him, uh, why, uh, why, why do you think Paul Lester would be a twat? And he looked at me like I was an idiot and he goes, his articles. Oh, okay. Now, look, it turned out that he was an okay bloke, although a boozy one. And I think he ended up crashing on the floor of my hotel room mm. and, like, dropping the contents of the minibar into a towel and taking them away. Because tomorrow is a new day. What, this Finnish bloke or Paul Heaton? Oh, the Finnish bloke. All right. But, I mean, yeah. It's, I think Paul Eaton may have done the same thing with his own minibar. But, <laughs> but the point is, it demonstrated to me that being a star would be really shit in lots of ways. Mm. Right? Unless you're genuinely a preening narcissist. Mm. Because if this was happening every time I left the house, or every time I changed trains at Camden Town, you know, mm. this would have been a fucking nightmare. Yeah, Especially yeah. when one finds that one's moods are not always entirely predictable. Um, <laughs> can you imagine, imagine it? Like, you're, sort of, you're on your way somewhere. It's like, you know, I don't know. You t- tell me about this thing you said three years ago. Like, yeah, God. Sorry, you're getting me confused with Alexa. <laughs> I, don't, I don't... I mean, and the thing is, if you say fuck off... You're a baddie, which yeah, yeah, you know yeah. is you know you sort of would be because there's no need for that, but it would happen. Oh yeah, so, every every other day I, you'd have been like Bjork at the airport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't question Paul Heaton for wearing an anorak mm. and a, a face like the emoji someone might send you if they were telling you they had to drive to Middlesbrough tomorrow. <laughs> um, you know, and having no visible personality because he got through that night in Turku saying 15 words mm. and drinking 16 pints. Yeah, yeah. And then going back to Betty Buys, cosy and alone, yeah. you know. And mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. get it. I get why he does that. It's not entertaining and it's not a great contribution to culture, but I do get it. Yeah. And is Paul Lester a twat? <laughs> what, 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 make, what makes you think he'd be a twat, Al? Well, because this Finnish bloke just said it. <laughs> 
Well, I'm sure he's listening, so maybe he wants to uh, reach out on Twitter and he can let, he can tell you what I said. The House Martins, are they the godfathers of Britpop? Because there is a definite line niche between this and the soft lad end of Britpop, don't you think? Uh... Sort of, but I would say that the soft lad end of Britpop um, is too in love with kind of glam in a way, or in two in love with Bowie and that kind of side of things to f- truly just see this as an antecedent. I would say the Godfathers of Landfill mm. because that I hear that same bounciness in bollocks like, you know, whatever they were called. All those groups, no one can remember what they were called. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the Libertines. Ooh. Like, let's not fucking forget what how much the Libertines took from the House Martins. That dreadful fucking, you know. It's like the, the chord sequence from Heatwave, but played bouncing <laughs> over and over again oh fuck it so the following week happy hour dropped one place to number four and then spent another two weeks in the top 10 before sliding down in the meantime london nil hole four crashed into the lp chart at number three staying there for one week the follow-up Think for a minute, got to number 18 in November, but they close out 1986 with their a cappella of Isley Jasper Isley's Caravan of Love, ending the foul reign of the final countdown by Europe to get to number one for one week in December, being pipped for the Christmas number one by another claymation video song, Reap Petite by Jackie Wilson. After an amicable split in 1988, Paul Heaton went on to form the Beautiful South, Norman Cook formed Beats International before mutating into Fatboy Slim, Stan Collymore opened a Whole Foods shop in Hull before becoming a children's book writer and journalist, and Hugh Whittaker went on to be the drummer in extremely late period, Freddie and the Dreamers. (laughs) By the way, did I ever mention... The long-running argument I had with my mum about um, Rainbow. No. Oh, yeah. Always used to argue with my mum about Rainbow. Um, We were discussing what the creatures were. Yeah. Yeah, obviously George is a a hippo, even though Mm. he's pink. He's not a pig. Bungle's obviously a bear. She was convinced Zippy um, was a turtle. Ooh. (laughs) We used to have this endless argument. I just just adamant Zippy is a Zippy. Yeah. Yeah. He's just a creature called Zippy. He's not, he doesn't have any real natural analogue. But yeah, no, she always used to argue with me about that. Yeah, he doesn't seem to fit any sort of real life branch of of fauna. But I I remember (laughs) having the same conversation with someone at school and they got, really weirdly uh, furious about it. Like, they seemed really... Uh, he's a fucking worm! <laughs> what? Like, I, I, I don't think he's a worm. No. He's a fucking worm! Oh. Oh, right. uh, no, he's a zippy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you will subscribe to our podcast. You know, it's all about how to get the most out of your partner. And we're partners. So we know all about it. It's good. Get it wherever you want to get it when you go and get it from your podcast place. Richard and Greta. You know. You know. Tunes for Top of the Pops, Nil. They are Hell's Heroes. Check out the album. It's also at number three. Here's Gary Newman, and I can't stop. Janice, finally in shot, wearing a barely hanging on the shoulder brown dress and festooned with bangles and earrings, capping off a look that can only be described as. Romany Harvester serving wench <laughs> is dead excited that the House Martins are in the studio and tells us that their LP is also at number three before grabbing us by the wrist and Irish whipping us into the next act. I Can't Stop by Gary Newman. We've covered the new many a time and off, most recently in chart music number 52, where he teamed up with Bill Sharp and took Change Your Mind to number 17 in March of 1985. Since then, he's put out the LP The Fiore on his own label, Numa Records, along with four singles and a live EP, which landed in the 30s and 40s. This is the second single from his eighth LP, Strange Charm, which is due out in November. It's the follow-up to This Is Love, which got to number 28 in April of this year. It entered the chart last week at number 32, and this week it's jumped five places to number 27. And here's the video, which divides its time between a nightclub set in Shepperton Studios and above the Duxford Aerodrome in Cambridgeshire, where Gary zooms about in his T6 Harvard single-seater plane like a replicant Mr. Sheen. <laughs> Fucking hell, chaps. It's Gary Newman again and again and again. <laughs> It's Gary Newman again. We've, we, we have seen him at every stage, haven't we, really? Um, yes. Newman. Here in the, in the time of his career, I'm guessing, where he, he knows he's only peddling to his fans now. He's, I don't think there's any ambition to reach any, any further beyond the Newmanoids at this point. Well, Neil, he's been in the news this month for pulling a status quo before status quo ever thought of it. From John Blake's White Hot Club in the Daily Mirror is this article, Beeb Snub is putting me in the red, hmm. says angry Gary Newman. Gary Newman, the singer who became a millionaire from all those smash hits like Cars and Our Friends Electric, tells me he is facing hard times. The reason, he says, is the lack of playing time given to his records by Radio 1 bosses. 
I am a very disappointed, bitter and worried man, Gary said at the offices of his company's Rock City and Numa Records. Gary is mortgages quarter of a million home to keep his companies afloat and put off his wedding plans because his future is so uncertain. Gone too is his gleaming Ferrari. Gary has released five records in the last year. The last two reached number 28 and number 27 in the charts and then suddenly dropped out. This was because Radio 1 gave them practically no airtime, he says. (laughs) The last two got a total of three plays, despite being in the top 30. I think the problem is that I don't wine and dine people for favours like heads of bigger record companies. I thought he was going to say, I think the problem is I don't wine. I was going to say, no, you you really, really do, Gary, both on and off record by the sound of it. A BBC spokesman denied a ban on Gary's records. We have pointed out to Mr Newman's company that our playlist is not just a mindless rotation of what is in the charts. It is more to encourage Good music. Oh, me how BBC. <laughs> but the BBC have given him a big plug here on this video. Well, too, right. And he's only in at 27, for fuck's sake. I don't know what he's moaning yeah. about. I mean, yeah. I mean, what does like, he want? Like you say, the reason his singles of 85 and 86 haven't been played much is because they're fucking rubbish like this one. But the video's a bit odd. I mean, there's a lot of the Newman in his plane, and you, you wonder what he's up to and what he's looking out for. It's either <laughs> He's either looking for traitorous scum who should be shot for not being excited about the forthcoming royal wedding as we learn from that smash hits piece in chart music number 24 or maybe he's looking for where he fits in the landscape of 1986 yeah 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 well in 1986 i was still so tuned in to 1986 that i actually remember this uh yeah. but i also remember it being as almost the peak of his irrelevance you know what i mean like <laughs> mm. just dressed as a waiter and looking yeah. uncertain, you know. It's, it's, it's like he's going to a dinner dance in Mad Max. <laughs> yeah, part-time yeah. waiter, full-time conspiracy theorist. Yeah, and, and, he, <laughs> and he's still got that old-fashioned hair transplant problem where you, mm. you got coverage but no body. So it's thin yeah. and scraped sideways, really flat on the top and really thick at the sides. And he can't fix it because in 1986... No one had their hair shaved up the sides except gay men and the house martins. So he's, <laughs> he's stuck with his oblong hair like Wogan. Yes. And that parting is such sweet sorrow. Uh, but it's, <laughs> and it's, it's not very good, like this record or this video. But no. if you can't be good, be entertaining. And mm, yeah. It at least comes close to being entertaining, this video. Yes. <laughs> I've said this before. Whenever we do one of these, I always watch the episode once when I'm completely out of my head because mm. you get a different perspective, <laughs> right? And on that viewing, I was almost up on my feet applauding this video because <laughs> it's so weird and uncomfortable, mm. especially for what yeah. is meant to be a fairly simple performance video, you know, spiced up with a bit of aviation footage and a and a glamorous lady but the the actual sort of lurid abnormal reality of it is fucking horrible and great uh, for a start 
is group. <laughs> like, yes. have you, has there ever been a more ragged band? <laughs> These <I> fucking <laughs> jokers. It doesn't look like it's real. What it looks like, you know, when you used to have a like a shit comedy show and they mm. were doing a spoof of some singer and they'd dress someone up quite carefully as the singer. Mm. But for the band, they'd just have a few blokes standing around in the background. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. they're not spent any time or effort. They just chuck them some sort of wrong, vaguely rock star-ish clothes and guitar. Mm. They never look like a real band. Um, and that's what this is like. It's like his real yes. band didn't turn up. So they, <laughs> he's, got, he's got serving suggestion. In. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or just like, you know, the lighting crew or something. And it, but but yes. instead of skulking around in the background, being ignored, he's got them right up front with him, like yes. brightly mm. lit and sharing the spotlight. And for those of us with a certain sense of humour, this is fantastic news because <laughs> yes. you got that fucking Mr. Spooner on lead guitar in a yes. PVC trench coat yeah. that mm. looks like a tarp flapping off the back of an 18-wheeler halfway <laughs> up the M6. It doesn't fit him at all. And he's got it over what looks like his office clothes. Yes. And just in case any trace of rock and roll glamour might have stuck to him by accident, like from a previous job or something, he's got a cocktail umbrella Stuck in yes. the headstock of his guitar, the way rock and rollers have a fag. Thrown yeah. straight out of the fucking audition for Sparks for that. <laughs> yeah, it's like just which just further undermines his his owner's attempt to snarl convincingly. You know why did Gary Lumen allow that? <laughs> It's hard to. You know, if you were a lead singer in a band and your guitarist did that, you'd be fucking well dischuffed. What are you doing? Yeah, and of course the the love interest is a is a bit of an eye opener as well. It's yes. this woman of the eighties with a, a sort of shapeless, teased out Brian May hair. You know, which oh god, it's yeah. like the mid eighties signifier of raunch and wild spirit, which actually. Mm is bizarrely desexualizing and unflattering. And it was yeah. endemic at the time, that sort of bird's nest haircut. You know, yeah. for all yeah, yeah. supposedly sexy ladies, if you were supposed to be a sexy lady, you had that. It was like there was some variation of that on every glamour model and, and like, porn mm. performer and, like, rock and roll vixen and all that sort of stuff. Yes. And it pissed all over my teenage hormones this is partly why i was getting such little action because the girls i fancied all had normal hair Mm. and those were Mm. like the good girls who were not prepared to ruin themselves for my enjoyment um and all the girls who were more broad-minded and accommodating all had that haircut so i didn't fancy them any more than Mm. they fancied me um but it's it's a very effective cut for neutralising human attractiveness, you know. Like Stevie Mm. Nicks went from the personification of the Californian ideal to Debbie from Accounts in the space of an hour (laughs) just from getting that haircut in 1980. You know, uh, so what we got here is this mysterious naughty lady um, who is like, you know, sort of Gary's uh, sexy uh, (laughs) painting on the... (laughs) side of his van or you know oh i'd like to kiss her yeah yeah or like the like the the what's what they call it on the front of his ship you know yes and she's like it's obviously like good looking woman raven haired you know dressed in a low cut Mm. skin tight pvc outfit and she's advancing on the camera with 
heavily made up eyes, you know, a slinking and a winking. Mm. But because of this fucking ridiculous Charles the First hair, like <laughs> surbit and topiary. <laughs> so the only thing that this suggestive performance actually suggests is 1986 could be the least sexy non-plague year in British history. Um, (laughs) You know, it's like you're meant to see it and go, uh, whoa, you know, but in fact, you're just just thinking, ah, go back to the Queen Vic. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no no one lights a fag. (laughs) And it's it's set in a cocktail bar kind Mm, of thing. And you just think, what cocktail bar would have Gary Newman and his band playing. I know, and there's no one there. That's yeah, the thing. Yeah. No. The worst thing. Because I've seen it. It's like, oh, fucking Gary Newman's playing. Fuck that. Let's go to the new fun pub down the road. They've got a bucking bronco machine. <laughs> there's a couple of people around the corner who aren't watching the group, mm. but the only mm. one who's standing there watching the group is sexy Isaac Newton, which yes. becomes even more embarrassing when she gets up and starts dancing, because if there's one thing worse than playing a gig to one person who sat down listening it's playing a gig to one person who's mm. up and dancing yeah, because yeah. <laughs> it looks like they're trying to give you moral support rather than yeah. enjoying the music it's like a pity frog you mm. know yeah or, or the the drummer's the boyfriend yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. what cocktail is she drinking i bet i bet it's taboo <laughs> <laughs> that's classier than malibu isn't it <laughs> Well, it's a mess, isn't it, this video? Because I, 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 yes. I, I don't think Gary knows what he wants to sound like, in a way. His voice is still the same as on those early 80s records. But, but I mean, the fact that he's got a guitar on him suggests to me that he's trying to take it back to Tubeway Army. Perhaps. There's a lot of that. Co- but it's 1986. But there's a lot of this stuff in 1986. This band of elderly rockers that Taylor's talked about, what they play is this kind of horrific melange of leather and lace style, pointy headstocked jippage and this kind of <laughs> nondescript u.s version of dance music and 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 you know it doesn't help that the, the aerial cutaways to him presumably crop spraying or something i don't know what he's doing <laughs> <laughs> he's like telly savalas in capricorn one <laughs> and i couldn't help thinking is that the same field that you know Rene heartbreakingly waves goodbye to renata <laughs> in his slazenji yes. jumpers they look very very yes. similar but that leather and lace thing i mean if and you... she's out there she's followed him and she's sitting on a car and the, the plane goes overhead fucks her hairstyle right. yeah, she looks much better afterwards as well yeah perhaps <laughs> what the crop spray is it's fucking harmony <laughs> <laughs> It's the only way to administer sufficient quantities. There's so much of this. I mean, there's so much of this skin-tight PVC-type stuff at this time. And if, as a pubescent child, you know, you watch Top of the Pots through the 80s and didn't come out with a faint interest in BDSM behaviours, you probably weren't watching hard enough. Mm. Um, there was there was a hell mm. of a lot of this leather and lace stuff um, at this period. But I don't yes. know what he's made about. Number 27, clearly he's only on here. It's a record. It's, I mean, it's his own record company, but I think he's put he's put a word into one of his fellow aeronauts, Mike Smith, maybe to get this on top of the box. <laughs> yes, or Edmonds. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, the, the, this song is obviously meant to sound like something off Lodger or Scary Monsters. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. It's that in that, but except that it misses the point because it's all straight lines and 
everyone playing exactly what you'd expect them to play, which is kind of the opposite of what happens on those albums, which is why those albums are really good mm. and this is shit. Mm. Um, but... I sort of almost like it just because it's so awkward and peculiar and yeah. the whole thing is so exquisitely uncool, you know, and unself-aware. <laughs> Again, it's another single that's completely out of place on Top of the Pops in 1986. Yeah, yeah. What, what it is is that at this point he's like one of those loonies who used to put out their own records. You know what I mean? Mm. I mean, literally, that's what he is. Like one of those lone nuts who uh, puts all his records out himself because no record company would touch them, Mm. you know. Mm. Um, Mm. But a lot of those records are obviously terrible, but when you hear them, they're sometimes intriguingly weird, you know. Mm. And you're not 100% sure what you've walked into. Like Joa Valley, if you've ever heard that. It's this, this bloke from I don't know when who did this amazing album of Beatles covers with him singing in this nasty operatic warble over the top. Oh, which yes. has to be heard to be believed. Everyone should hear it once. But that's what Newman reminds me of at this stage. He's just doing his thing from just out in the country somewhere, you know, and he's got this weird outsider cast out from our world and lost in his own, you know. And he's, mm. But the trouble is, he's too boringly competent to stumble on greatness by mistake but he's much mm. too shit to be conventionally good mm. so it's all of lost in no man's land you know what i mean but at least this song and video combination are amusing and uncomfortable uh which is two mm. things which in pop music can be adequate substitutes for the the genuinely lively or provocative so, you know, I'll take it for now. It does touch back on what we were talking about earlier about 1986 and that, you know, pop is going to move on, but it can't lose its past yet. It seems to keep looking back just to the recent past of the early mm. 80s and it can't move on to these new yeah, figureheads yeah. who were coming yeah. yet. So we do get this. And as we'll see later on in the episode, um, this 1986 episode finds it very difficult to, to sort of shed the ghosts of the early 80s. Mm. Because, I mean, by the end of 1986, Human League, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, they're all going to come roaring back, or at least trying to roar back. Yeah. But it yeah, does yeah. feel they like they can't stop. Back. I mean, I'm not saying the Pet Shop Boys and Erasure were massively new, but they at least felt like sort of the next generation, if you like. You know, back mm. then most of us sort of assumed our pop stars would come and go within five years and fuck off and disappear because that's what we were used to, that quick turnover. Um, But these people were still hanging on, still hanging on. So the following week, I Can't Stop dropped one place to number 28 and then nosedived out of the charts. His next single, New Thing in London Town, another collaboration with the keyboard player artist Shack Attack with a shiny red arse, <laughs> only got to number 52 in October, and bar a couple of re-releases of Cars, he'd have to wait 16 years before his next top 40 place in, when Rip got to number 29 in July of 2002. <laughs> Gary Newman 
soars off into the distance. We're going to close the book on this part of chart music number 59. Don't forget, Pop Craze Youngsters, if you want the whole episode in one go with no adverts, we know fannying about or waiting for the next part to drop, you know what you've got to do. You've got to take them fingers, you've got to put them on the keyboard, you've got to tap out patreon.com slash chart music, and you pledge whatever you like. Sermon over at last. My name's Al Needham. On behalf of Neil Kulkani and Taylor Parks, I implore you to stay pop-crazed. Sharp music. Hello, I'm Chris England, and I'm here to tell you about the Fun Factory podcast, available now on Great Big Owl. Each time, I will be reading a couple of chapters of my novel, The Fun Factory, a historical comedy about the history of comedy, so it will kind of be like a free audiobook, which you can listen to at the gym, or jogging, or at your desk while pretending to do your job, or on the train, without the embarrassment of people seeing you actually reading a book like some kind of swat. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.